And so I want to, uh, I want to take you back to uh, Syracuse, New York. Um, it is the middle 1950s. That makes me sound very old. But uh, actually, by the way, I, this, is, this is a big day for Cindy and I. It's Mother's Day, and it's our 40th wedding anniversary. So very, very cool day for us. So I just want you to imagine uh, Mother's Day, I mean, 1950s, um, my mom comes back from the hospital in their 55 Chevrolet Bel Air. Um, and I'm in a little car seat that would not be compliant at all today. And uh, my mom starts a habit that she continued for more than 10 years. And that habit was to check in with me before going to bed, seeing how, see how I was doing, and then pray for me. And I will tell you that my mom did that day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. She did that every single night without fail. She would check in with me. She would pray with me. And in time, it became very natural for me to pray. I would hear her do it. She would ask me if I wanted to do it. I would do it. And what my mom was doing without knowing about it, because I don't know that her faith was just super robust at the time, but what she was doing is she was discipling me into a worldview. And the worldview was this. There is a real God who really is there, who really listens to prayer, and you can speak to him and encounter his presence. She was discipling me into that worldview. So fast forward 24 years. It is 1980. Cindy and I are driving home from the hospital. We take our oldest daughter, Sarah, into our home. What's the most natural thing in the world for me to do with my daughter? It is to check in with her, to pray with her, and to see how she's doing. And so I, I would do that every single night without fail. And then more kids came along, and I would do the same thing. I would check in with them. How are you doing? And then I would pray with them. And it was natural for me to do that. But what I was doing was I was discipling them into a worldview. And the worldview is that there's a real God out there. He really is somebody you can communicate with, and you can encounter his supernatural presence. And I will tell you that when we had four young kids in seven years, those times before bed were long because our kids would compete with me for equal, equal time, you know? And so sometimes the bedtime ritual would take 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, it was costly. But I had learned the benefit of that. I was passing that on to my children. Fast forward 30 more years, and now my children are married. They're growing their own families, and what are they doing with their kids? The same thing. Checking in with them before bed, praying with them, uh, when, when our kids were little, we used to call it pray and sing. They would say, Daddy, come pray and sing with me, because I would always pray and sing. And so now, now their kids are same thing. Mom, Dad, can, can you do that? And our 11 grandchildren are being discipled into a worldview. And the worldview is this. There's a God out there. That God is a God you can communicate with. You can gain the sense of his presence and walk in that presence. 
So think about the impact my mother made. My mother did something for me that allowed me to encounter the presence of God. She influenced me. I influenced our four kids. Our four kids are influencing our 11 grandchildren. And I'm assuming that that is going to multiply and continue with time. That's real-life discipleship. Real-life discipleship is you doing life in front of somebody else so that they see the presence of God. So let, let me define for you uh, discipleship in its purest form. In its purest form, discipleship is one person investing in another person so that they will know Jesus, follow Jesus, and live in his presence. Know, follow, live. Know him, obey him, encounter him. That's real life, full orb discipleship. And the family is the ideal place to do this. And we parents, you have the greatest opportunity to do this. You've heard about the 4 to 14 window. The 4 to 14 window was expressed by the National Association of Evangelicals in a 2015 study. And they said the majority of people who come to Christ did so between the ages of 4 and 14. And they said it's, it's a unique opportunity for the evangelism and discipleship of your children. And so I want to urge you parents to seize this opportunity. And if you are a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, you also have this opportunity, but it's applied in a slightly different way. But it's important for you to recognize that you have a discipleship role as well with your, with your children. So let's begin with the example of Jesus. How did Jesus do it? He began with prayer. He started his discipleship ministry with prayer in the context of close relationships. So we see how this works at Luke 6:12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the entire night in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples. Let me just take you back to this, to this story. Jesus hikes up a hill outside the village of Capernaum. That hill used to be called Mount Aramis. Today it's called the Mount of Beatitudes. If you could see Jesus on that night, he'd be walking up that hill, walking maybe into a grove of trees. Jesus would have sat down or maybe got on his knees and lifts up his hands and he begins to pray because he's going to choose the disciples the next day. I don't believe that Jesus is saying, Father, who should I choose? I'm so confused. They're all really good. I need wisdom about who to, who to pick. He knew he was going to pick. He knew exactly the ones whom he was going to choose. He'd been spending time with them. He'd been getting to know them. I think the focus of his prayer was not who he would choose, but on their encounter with him over the next three years. So Jesus is praying for Peter. Lord Jesus, I mean, Father, please, please empower Peter to learn during this next three years. Peter's a guy who puts his foot in his mouth. He's sort of out there with his words. Lord, I pray for him over the next three years. And he's praying for Peter and James and John and Andrew. And if Jesus prayed for each of his disciples for one hour, that would cover 12 hours worth of prayer. That would be the entire night in prayer. Now, when you think about that, these 12 disciples are going to build a movement. One hour doesn't seem that long to pray for somebody who's going to build an entire movement. He prays maybe one hour each 
for his disciples. Now, imagine people streaming up Mount Aramis in the morning, and you have a multitude of people coming. The images on the screen probably don't reflect the number of people who are coming. And Jesus is, he says, Peter, I'm, I'm picking you. James, come over here. John, come on over here. And pretty soon he's got the 12 in front of him. That is the product of an entire evening in prayer. So how does this apply to us as, as parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles? Parents in particular, you are the primary disciple maker of your children. And it comes first through prayer, your prayer for them. And you think about the things that you can pray for. You can pray for your child's development in the womb. That's a great thing to pray for. You can pray for their future friends. You can pray for the teachers. You can pray for your child's interpretation of pain. You know, pain's a, pain's a kind of an interesting thing. You can respond to God in your pain or you can reject God in your pain. Either one. I know people have encountered the same kind of pain. One came to God, one rejected God. You can pray for your child's response to pain. You can pray for your child's future college education. You can pray that they discover their, their gifts and their talents and their abilities. You can pray for their future career. You can pray for the future spouse. That was one of the things that God convicted me about really, really early on, like before our kids were even in school. I would pray for our children's future spouse. You can pray that God would protect them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But as a parent, you are the believer priest in your home which means you have a tremendous amount of authority to pray as a father, as a mother, as a primary caregiver. You can pray with the authority of your ascended union with Christ, praying protection over your children, praying that God would intervene in their life. Don't neglect that discipline. Prayer is doing battle on behalf of your children. And if you have adult children who now are having children, I think it's vital that you as a parent of an adult child with children pray similar things over your children and grandchildren because your adult children are going to encounter their struggles as they bring up their kids. So let's continue with, continue with the story. Uh, daybreak comes and uh, the crowds stream up the hill. Jesus chooses his disciples and he chooses 12. 12 was a very significant number. Why 12? Well, the reason why Jesus chooses 12 is because numbers were important. And so God created the world in seven days. So seven is a symbol of completion. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 is a symbol of a journey. Uh, Israel had 12 tribes. Uh, 12 is symbolic of leadership. And so Jesus is going to choose 12 to reflect the reality that he is leading a movement. He is the king. He is the Messiah. As the father organized Israel into 12 tribes, he, the Messiah, is going to organize the church around these 12 disciples. And notice these disciples are a very, very diverse group. You've got Simon the Zealot. He is a political radical. 
You've got Matthew, the tax collector. He is a political conservative. This would be like having, having a Bernie Sanders liberal and a Ted Cruz conservative on the same ministry team. Uh, there's potential for problems there. Yeah. Why would Jesus choose people with that level of diversity? Well, he, he, he did. And what he's doing is he's, he's not just looking at who these guys are in the present. He's peering into the future. And he's looking at who, they, who they, they're going to be in the future. So you've got 12 disciples reflecting spiritual leadership. But in the future, you know, Jesus is looking at these disciples and saying to them later on, in the renewal of all things, you're going to sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's not just thinking about their present quirkiness and problematic habits. He's thinking about these guys as future leaders within within the kingdom in the same way i think it's really important that you see your children as significant in the eternal plan of god you know your children you know may have issues one has a learning difficulty one is a slow bloomer one doesn't doesn't grow very fast the other one grows fast at a young age and uh, you have children who are, you know, who are at different, different levels. And as a parent, you are called to see the eternal future of your child and operate toward your child as somebody who, is, who has a dignified and an amazing future. Let me, let me, let me show you something. My PowerPoint is a little out of order here, but this is a quote that was really meaningful to me. And it's something that I, I think about a lot. My child is a never-ceasing spiritual being. My child has an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And I am here, and I have the privilege of shaping that destiny. So you as a parent are shaping the destiny of an eternal person who has an eternal future in God's great universe. So yes, they may be quirky now, but they are going to be people of such great nobility in the future, and you have the chance to shape that future. And parents who operate by faith are thinking along those lines. Imagine for a moment that you're going to be the, the you, imagine that you knew you were going to be the parent of the next Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. You think, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to do everything I can to help shape that destiny. Imagine that you, as a parent, know that my child is going to be the next Steph Curry or LeBron James or Kevin Durant. I mean, you think, wow, I mean, what do I do to shape that future? Well, your child is so much more than that. Your child is somebody who's got an eternal destiny in God's great universe, and you have the opportunity to shape that destiny. Now, I'm going to go back through these. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so... Let's get back to the story. Notice how Jesus unifies his disciples. Uh, Jesus appointed the 12, Simon, who, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he named, gave the name Boanjeres, which means son, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Several things jump out when I read the list. 
These guys are not kings. They're not CEOs of organizations. They're not wealthy landowners. They aren't the cultural elite. They are common, ordinary, laboring men. Their education was adequate, but not great. Their careers are adequate, but they're not great. They're most likely are living hand to mouth. Maybe they had a little bit left over, but they are, like most people in the ancient world, living an ordinary life. This has a lot of application to us as parents, because every parent wants his or her child to be exceptional, right? You look at your child and think, oh, he's going to be such a great leader when he grows up. And look at her. She's so good on the violin. She is going to be first chair in the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. He's going to receive a full scholarship because he's so good at soccer at age five. We all want that for our kids. That's something that we, we, we dream about our kids doing great things. Average is not good. Exceptional is what we want for our children. But what we see in this story is that what Jesus does is he takes ordinary people and he makes them exceptional through discipleship. And I hope you just have a category for that. Because many people have all these grandiose expectations for their kids don't live in the present reality of discipleship, and they live in a space of disappointment. And what I would encourage you to do is think about present opportunities for discipleship, day in, day out, week in, week out, trusting that God is going to take your investments in your child, and through those investments, he will do something extraordinary. Yes, spiritually, but also in practical, tangible ways. God does amazing things through discipleship. Let's continue uh, thinking through this list. How is Jesus going to unify these very diverse people? Well, the way he unifies them is through the with him principle. Jesus appointed the 12 that they might be with him. I've used this so many times before at Grace Community Church. The with him principle is the idea that I'm going... Jesus says, I'm going to be with these disciples. I'm going to walk with them. I'm going to camp with them. The disciple is going to see me brushing my teeth. The disciple is going to see me going to sleep. They're going to see me waking up. They're going to see me yawn in the morning. They're going to see me when I'm tired. They're going to see me when I'm preaching. They're going to see me when I'm, when I'm doing really well. They're going to see me when I'm physically exhausted. That's the with him principle. And the beautiful thing about the with him principle is that when you disciple in the context of, an, of a relationship like that, your discipleship is all the more powerful. And what, what an amazing opportunity, you know, with, with our kids living so close to us to be able to disciple in the context of those relationships. Your kids are going to see the best of you and the worst of you. So how are you going to handle things when you, the kids see the worst of you? Well, I know in our, in our home, I, I had to often say, all right, Caleb, I did not get that right, and I'm really sorry. With my adult children, I, many times, you know, I've, I've made an amend. I've said, you know what? I had this memory about this time when you were in high school, and something I did not handle right. And you know what? I, I've been thinking about it, 
And at first my kids were going, oh, dad, <laughs> why are you doing this? But, you know, as I've, as I've done that, I don't do it as, quite as much now, but because I've done it so many times. But, but you know, m- my, my kids expressed great appreciation that those lines of communication were open. And if there was an issue, they could come to me and talk to me about those things. But the closeness of parent and child creates an amazing opportunity for life on life with him discipleship. One of the reasons... Um, why we have children in our worship times is so that parents and children can worship together. I think it's a good thing for kids to see mom and dad worshiping. I think it's a good thing for kids to see mom and dad raising their arms. I think it's a good thing for a child to see mom and dad closing their eyes and worshiping from the heart. That's one of the reasons why we do that. And I hope you take advantage of our worship times at Grace to mentor and teach your kids about the value of corporate worship. Let's switch gears. Let's think about how Paul did it. Jesus uh, began with prayer, and he discipled in the context of close relationships. Paul uh, does it uh, slightly differently, but Paul is intentional about multiplication. And so as a parent, I want to encourage you to think generationally. 2 Timothy 2.2, The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... These entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So I want you to zero in on that word faith, uh, um, entrust, that key word entrust. The idea of entrust is that you take a very valuable asset and you give it to a friend for safekeeping. In the ancient world, there were no banks with safe deposit boxes. So if you had a very valuable asset and you're going on a trip, you went to your trusted friend. And you said, trusted friend, this is a gold ring that my great-grandfather gave to me. I'm going to be away for three months. My house is not that secure. You're here. I'm going to entrust this to you for those three months. Will you take care of this for me? What Paul is saying is it's important that you take God's word and then you entrust that word into somebody else's life as a matter of discipleship so that they will grasp God's word, treasure that, and begin to live out God's word in their life. What I love about this passage is that there are four generations here. The first generation is Paul. Paul's the one who begins this process. And then the second generation is Timothy. Paul leads Timothy to Christ after he was stoned in the city of Lystra. Incredibly, Paul goes back into the city, leads Timothy, his mother, and his grandmother to Jesus. Timothy then has the third generation. He entrusts it to faithful men and women, and their fourth generation is others also. So uh, four generations here, and the goal is that you would think generationally about how you disciple people. So I'm thinking about the guy who discipled me at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Guy's name is Pat Dillon. Pat is living in San Diego right now. And I had texted Pat, and I, I took a picture of somebody, and I said, Pat, I'm, I'm going I'm to go back, go back to, to the others also. I'm going to say, Pat, I'm sending you a picture of this person 
that person is your others also. You invested in my life. I invested in somebody else's life. That person invests, and, and that's your fourth generation. And my friend wrote back to me, and he said, man, I'm just so honored that you would do that. Thank you. Thank you for doing that, because it, it honored him. He was the guy who mentored me. So I, I want you to think about how you can do this as a, as a parent, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply this to my family. So here's my father and mother when they were about the time that I was born. Uh, my mom and dad uh, were followers of Christ, and my mom, as I said, built into my life. So what about them? So there are, there's my grandmother, my grandfather and grandmother. My grandmother was a powerful force in my dad's life through prayer. My grandfather was an uh, avid Bible student. He was an investment uh, uh, he managed investments in New York City, uh, av av avid, avid Christian, uh, studied, the, studied the word. What about his parents? Well, back in the 1800s, this was my great-grandfather and grandmother. My grandfather there was active in personal ministry in Trenton, New Jersey. I have a postcard that he wrote when he was the director of the Bible Society in uh, Lawrenceville, New Jersey. What about his parents? Well, his father was a judge and an elder in a church that sent his son to China in 1871 when Hudson Taylor was still there. Strong, avid follower of Christ. His father and mother, uh, also strong Christians, strong believers. This is Revolutionary War era. Uh, I have some information about him and about his relationship with Christ. This guy was his father, strong believer. Now, okay, this is a guy named Edward Shippen. He founded the city of Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. You think he had any conception when he was parenting his children that he was starting some sort of a, a movement spiritually? No. Or did he? Or did he? I don't know. I don't know. But somebody in my family line thought generationally, and I'm the recipient of that. So maybe you have people in your family. It's been one generation. You are a second-generation Christian. Or maybe nobody in your family has ever been a believer before. It doesn't matter. The baton is in your hands. Maybe you're sustaining a movement Maybe you're beginning a movement, but you with your children have the future open to you. And you through your children have the potential to influence the world generationally through what you do today and tomorrow. It begins with prayer and changing diapers. It begins with prayer and cleaning up a messy child in the high school, in, in, in the high school, in their high chair. <laughs> Freudian slip. Uh, it, it begins with prayer in the midst of common, ordinary things. Okay? So let's find some takeaways. Discipling kids in 2019, 
You've got you to do the basics, but you've also got to go beyond the basics. Okay. And beyond the basics means that you pay attention to certain things while you are discipling your, your children. So what are those things? Number one, if you're going to disciple your kids in 2019, one of the things you need to disciple them into is the area of sexuality. Um, look, the sexual revolution began in post-World War II America, in, at, least, at least here, here in our country. But it really took off in the 1960s. And about 10 years ago, um, it got way more complicated. And it's really complicated right now. So you have a situation on Facebook where Facebook in 2014 listed 50 options for gender. Then it was 91 options. Now I'm told, somebody told me it was over 100 options. Things morally, ethically, sexually are chaotic in 2019. Um, with these new identities have come people claiming new rights. And so in 2015, the Supreme Court case Oberfell versus Hodges ruled that same-sex same couples have the right to marry as same-sex couples. Well, immediately after that, a whole bunch of other groups were claiming equal rights under the law and the big issue now that I hear about from parents of young kids is the issue of gender and the trans, transgender movement. And so kids have these, these questions, you know, can a boy identify with a girl and compete on a woman's track team? Things that people 20 years ago weren't even dealing with as questions. Do I have to use pronouns that reflect the gender of, that my classmate has chosen? So you have children, and your children are trying to deal with these things in the culture, and you as a parent are called to disciple your children in this area. Look, sexuality has to do with basic human flourishing. And God is very clear about the nature of sexuality. God created humans in his image, male and female. Maleness and femaleness are not arbitrary traits. It's not like we have a unisex soul with biological clothing over our unisex soul. God says we are created male and female, and part of human, basic human flourishing is the ability for a child growing into an adult to treasure and cherish his or her sexuality as a gift from God and use it the way God designed for it to be used. So who's going to train them how to do that? You as the parent. And in the year 2019, that, that is a crucial thing for you to do. How do you do it? Well, there's an intellectual component and a relational component. Intellectually, I think you as a parent have to really come to grips with your biblical understanding of sexuality in a culture that wants to destroy your belief system. So you as a parent have to become an apologist for the biblical view on sexuality and know how to teach that to your child in a culture, the kind of culture we're living in right now. Is that hard? Yes, it is brutally hard. And I want to make it harder on you. 
If you're a parent of a young child, I want to I encourage you to become knowledgeable about why the biblical view is so important to human flourishing. You may know what the biblical view is, but do you know why that biblical view is so important to human flourishing? There are dozens of amazingly well-done science-based surveys that support the biblical view on sexuality. You don't see them much, but they're out there. There is a robust literature, science-based literature, confirming the biblical view. But it's hard to get to. As a parent, I encourage you to become an apologist for that. Second, relationally, it's important for your children to see you manifesting a healthy, healthy sexuality. If you're, if you're a two-parent family, your kids need to see dad loving on his mom. If you're a two-parent family, kids need to see mom loving the father. They need to see affection. They need to see love. They need to see honor. They need to see good things happening in the marriage. If you're a single parent, it's a little bit different, but it's important as a single parent that you express honor to the ex. You may not like them, may, may be frustrated with them, but it's important that there is at least an expression of honor in that relationship. I could say a lot more about that, but let me press on. Second area of discipleship is in the area of money. In the year 2019, this is, a, this is a really, really crucial one. The elephant in the room for most parents of teenagers is student loan debt. So among the class of 2018, 69% of college students took out student loans. 69%, that's, that's a lot. They graduated with an average debt of $30,000. Many students owe more than twice that, and a dentist in Draper, Utah, owes over a million dollars student loan debt. There are a hundred people in the United States who owe a million dollars or more in student loan debt. And that, that number is, is increasing. I read an article about the guy who is an orthodontist who owes over a million dollars. He talked about why, how that happened and what that's like for him. USA Today reports that millennials are so buried in debt that they can't buy into the American dream of owning a home and so on, and so on. The problem is that a lot of high school seniors going into college, taking out student loans, don't know the value of that money. And so I think it's really crucial that parents disciple their kids about the biblical view of work and money. And personally, I think if that means you delay college a year, that's a great form of discipleship. That's my personal idea, but that may not be for your family. But what I'm saying is that the two big issues that kids are facing as they move into the late teen years, early adult years, have to do with sex and money. And who are the ones best equipped to disciple there are kids in these two areas. You. But you're competing. And you're competing against the world that is singing a very different tune in both of those areas. 
If you're here and your kids are grown or your grandparent, man, I would encourage you to be on your knees in prayer for your kids as they navigate these things. When my kids tell me about some of the things that they encounter in Seattle, Washington, that's, that's a call for me to hit my knees in prayer and say, man, Lord, I'm praying for my kids as parents that they would make great decisions on how to disciple my grandchildren in these areas. And here's the third area. The third area is beware the trap of reverse discipleship. Reverse discipleship is defined as the tendency for moms and dads to allow their kids to swerve them away from fidelity to Christ. And here's how it works. Uh, Kids come back from college freshman year. They're around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And the child begins to articulate, well, I don't believe this anymore, and I have questions about this, and I really doubt this about my faith. And so the parents, wanting the acceptance of their adult kids, begin to change their viewpoints on spirituality, on the Bible, toward what their adult kids are saying in college. And I've heard an amazing number of of parents who are walking with Christ for many years, who become intimidated by the changing views of their children, and rather than calling their children to a new place, they change their views to comport to their children's views, thinking, well, this is hip and cool and awesome, and this is where the culture is going, so I'm going to believe what my kids believe. But I know a lot of, a lot of kids, and the reason, uh, a lot of adult children who came back to the faith because their parents practiced grace and truth, unconditional love with their children who are dabbling in different worldviews while maintaining the truth of what they believed. So I would encourage you, beware the trap of reverse discipleship. I see it happening more and more with parents of adult kids where those adult kids have changed their views on things. Now I finished on a rather sobering note, but the thing that I want to say in closing is just, man, it, we face, I think, the golden era of parenting, parents discipling their kids. The golden era. And you have so many opportunities to train up your children in ways that will cause them to flourish. Don't neglect that. Begin with prayer and think generationally. Let's stand for our closing prayer.